Hello and welcome back to the Crash Podcast, Clinical Radiology Academics Speaking Honestly. I'm your host, Tom Termazai, Consultant Radiologist in Norwich and the Royal College of Radiologists 2020 Röntgen Professor. In this podcast, we've been hearing all about inspirational radiologists from across the UK who are involved in academic radiology and research, and today is no different. Last time, in episode three, we spoke with three motivated, clear-thinking consultant radiologists that had all committed to academic radiology positions in England. In this fourth episode, we take a look at the very different tracks that our guests have taken in pursuing their research goals. Among other things, we look at the different research training and opportunities in Wales and Scotland, and how you can set up a thriving research programme as a full-time consultant within the NHS. This week, the podcast is structured a little bit differently so we could get all our guests involved. <clears throat> Never plan a recording session in half term. So we have split the episode into two parts. In the first part, I'm delighted to be joined by Michelle Williams, Senior Clinical Research Fellow and Honorary Consultant Radiologist in Edinburgh, and Christina Messu, Consultant Radiologist at the Royal Marsden Hospital and Reader at the Institute of Cancer Research in London. A very warm welcome to both of you and thank you for joining us on the Crash Podcast. Thank you very much for having me here today. It's a delighted to take part in this. Welcome. Hi. So, Christina, as usual, let's start with you telling us a little bit more about yourself and your background and how you came to be where you are today. Yeah, I guess I'll start 14 years ago when I was finishing off my radiology training, which was actually up in Yorkshire. And because I was coming to the end of my training, one of my bosses actually suggested that I should broaden my horizons and do some out of programme training at the Marsden for three months. And I just thought it was a good idea. So off I went and um, had a really fantastic three months and, and completely by chance at the end of those three months, there was an opportunity to do an MD. Now, that was never on the life plan. But I had done a couple of research papers as a trainee up in Yorkshire. I'd enjoyed it. And I just thought it was an opportunity that I should pass by. And so here I am 14 years later, still at the Marsden as a, a consultant in the NHS who does a fair bit of research, I guess. And I think you're being modest. What year were you the RCR Röntgen Professor? I should have prepared myself for that. I can't remember time. <laughs> no, that's okay. But <laughs> that's you're still a few on... years ago. It was, yeah. but you're still on the academic committee. And, I am. you know. It's, it certainly shows that you are delivering real high quality research. What I'd also like you to deliver some high quality on is our crash test. As you'll have picked up by now, coming on the crash podcast means you've got to have to answer some of the crash test questions. A reminder for everyone, this involves a little bit of a meddlesome mix of quickfire questions that guests select from the crash test grid, answering as honestly as possible. The idea is to find out a little bit more about them, uh, lifting the lid on their heads and seeing what they've been keeping hidden up there all this time. So this week, you'll find yourself on the naughty step next to my youngest. If you don't tell the truth, then there you go. That should make you think twice. Uh, let me just fire up the crash test grid. You're going to get us started, uh, Christina, and we're going to do four questions. Which numbers from one to 16 would you like to go with? Uh, number nine. Have you ever had an X-ray? Yes. Oh, yes, I have. Yes, finally. I have. Yes, I've had X-rays of my hands. I used to break a lot of fingers playing netball as a, as a schoolgirl and yes, hockey. Well, that's, yeah, that's, that's the first one. Brilliant. Yeah, oh. um, yeah no, no one so far. Uh, next one. 14. What would you most like to change about yourself? Uh, I wish I was less anxious. So uh, I'm glad this is not a live recording. Next one. <laughs> Let's go for number 16. What would be your dream holiday? Do you know, I still look forward every year to our annual pilgrimage to Solcombe in Devon. We've been going every year for 14 years and we wouldn't change it. So that oh, is fantastic. my dream holiday. Oh, fantastic stuff. And OK, last one. Number four. 
Which subject could you not wait to give up at school? German. Uh, why is that? Actually, funnily enough, I, I won the middle school German prize, but to this day, I think it was a practical joke from the teacher. <laughs> I just was not very good at German. Yeah, we've heard that those prizes can be given to try and entice students to carry on. I remember yeah. teachers telling me yeah. that. Christian, thanks very much for doing the crash test. Michelle, let's move on to you. Please tell us about yourself, your background and how you came to be where you are today. Thanks very much, Tom. Well, I had a bit of a circuitous route into radiology and into research. About 10 years ago, I was actually a cardiology trainee and uh, I was really keen on research. I've always been keen on research. I remember mentioning it in my interview for medical school back a ridiculous length of time ago. And I'd always done projects of uh, mostly very unsuccessful projects as a, as a student uh, going along. And I tried to get onto the Edinburgh Clinical Academic Tract, which was the, the run through training for academia. And I'd failed so several times. So ultimately, I went with the support of an amazing professor in Edinburgh, who's still my boss today. We got funding from the charity, the British Heart Foundation, for a PhD scholarship and then clinical research training fellowship as a cardiology registrar. And Professor Newby said to me, well, we've just had this new scanner installed. We've just set up this whole imaging center. Go down, find out what it's all about, and we'll do some research to do with CT scanning. And I've never seen a CT scanner. I'd seen pictures of them in books. I'd seen pictures when the patients came back from the CT scanner and never even really been in the radiology department apart from asking for scans. It was in the days of paper requests that you had to run around with. So I duly went down to the Clinical Research Imaging Centre and I refused to leave ever since. So I completed my PhD as a cardiology trainee and about halfway through I said, right, this is just too much fun. I want to do this forever. Uh, CT, MRI, PET, I want all of it. And I signed up as a radiology trainee here in Edinburgh and I um, continued my research all the way through the radiology training and um, as a postdoctoral researcher. It's definitely challenging. There's a lot of exams when you're doing radiology. So for the first half of my radiology training, I did just radiology training and the academic work was all in my spare time didn't have much spare time and then the last half of my radiology training I was able to get a variety of Scottish government funded posts as SCREDS clinical lecturers and clinical research fellows part funded by the Scottish government to mean that I extended my radiology training by a bit but was doing half research half clinical and now I am British Heart Foundation funded researcher again I do half research half clinical work during the week and my research, I kind of describe it as anything to do with the heart, the lungs and the blood vessels. I often say it's that middle bit of the chest, but actually there's blood vessels in any bit of the body. And increasingly, we're realizing they're all interlinked and very relevant. So that's um, my rather circuitous route into research, which is kind of a lesson in uh, if at first you don't succeed, keep trying. If you want to do it, you'll find a way eventually. Well, one of the common themes has been people deserting surgery aspirations when they were at medical school. And that's certainly a very different story that you've told us, almost upside down from the PhD coming first and being drawn in to imaging. So that's fantastic news and what this should be all about. So I'm afraid you can't escape the crash test. <laughs> we have got four more questions for you, if you'd like to pick one. Give me a one, please, Tom. Okay, Wimbledon tennis champion or best actress Oscar winner? Oh, easy, Michelle Williams, best actress Oscar winner. Yeah, I couldn't be a better person to answer <laughs> that one. Right, next. I'll have a number 11, please. What's the most unusual thing you've ever eaten? 
Oh, that's a tricky one. I quite like trying all sorts of weird and wonderful food. Anytime I'm on holiday, I search out the local delicacies. It was probably the crickets in Thailand. They were a little bit unusual, although to be honest, they did kind of taste like peanuts. Ah, well, that's enlightening. Okay, next one. And number seven, please. What's the best live gig you've ever been to? Oh, that would be the Eagles. Um, we went to see them in Glasgow and they were incredible. Second top would be Monty Python down in London. That was an amazing show as well. Yeah, nice. Uh, which would be your last number then? And number five, please. Do you sleep with a cuddly toy? I have Yoshi here with me. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> don't sleep with a cuddly toy but i do love my anime uh, memorabilia and computer programming uh, gaming memorabilia <laughs> oh good i need to put you in touch with russell frude who uh, is very much into that kind of thing as well okay now hang on a second before we go you haven't picked a question that i ask everyone and that is how many times did you fail your driving test michelle None passed first time. I got a minor for being too slow because I passed my driving test up in Scotland where the obstacles were sheep and one set of traffic lights, no roundabouts and no motorways. Fantastic place to sit a driving <laughs> test. I highly recommend it. Oh, good. Good. Okay. So that's a bit, another one in the zero column. Christina, how about uh, yeah, you? I passed, yeah, I passed first time as well, actually. And funnily enough, I also got a little minor for driving too slowly, just like Michelle, but there were no sheep. Uh, same here I actually got my minor and then I actually got that sort of rescinded because I pulled out rather aggressively from a junction and that seemed to convince <laughs> the driving instructor that I I had the kutzpah so okay oh. great well thanks both for doing the crash test coming on to the real matter of what we're going to be discussing today in Scotland Michelle I've managed to look up on the internet and I have to read it. The Scottish Clinical Research Excellence Development Scheme, that's quite a mouthful, SCREDS, I think for short, is the current academic training pathway, which is, I guess, in some ways different from the NIHR integrated academic training structure in England, where you have three years of clinical fellowship, 25% academic, and then 50-50 for your clinical lecturer post that's designed to see you through the end of your training. Can you tell us a little bit about the academic career progression in Scotland, which may not necessarily have been what you classically did, but tell us about your own experiences and, and what those differences are in Scotland. Over the past few years, there's been a real concerted effort to try and make academic training a more structured, formalised thing that people can actually see their way through how it's going to fit with their training and how it's going to fit with their life and future career. When I came into research, it was very ad hoc. Everyone did different things. And one of the good things about research is it's still very flexible. There are still a lot of different options for how you get into and how you progress through research. There's two sort of real things. One is whether is it going to be out of programme for a specific period of time during research, or is it going to be something that you integrate into your training as part of these uh, clinical academic lectureship tracks? And all of it involves discussions with deaneries and discussions with supervisors and discussions with programmes. So is that very much a bifurcation that you have to choose? Are you going to be committing to that, wanting that academic time or making it work within your training? No, because at different times you can mix and match between the two as well. I mean, obviously, if you um, are successful to get onto one of the standard clinical academic tracks in one of the universities linked with your training, that's a nice run through path they, taking you all the way through your, your training. But you can mix and match as things come up and as different things develop and as projects appear and disappear. 
Um, the easy way to do it is to get onto an academic track that takes you all the way through, very similar to the NIHR schemes, but there are these other options that uh, come along, which is a case of working out what funding is available and what time you can take out of your programme as well. And have you been involved at all in bringing up some trainees through that system? So starting to now, quite excitingly, yes, I have my own PhD fellow and there are a variety of radiology trainees as well who've um, either got onto the Edinburgh academic tract or in other uh, institutions part of a, an academic program now as well so yes it's really exciting to see the the where i was before people starting to to come through now great thanks very much michelle uh, christine let me come to you i'm i'm going to ask you to expand a little bit on what your research has involved and what kind of projects you got involved with in training and beyond that led you to to be where you are with your current research the research that i did as a trainee is is very different to the research that i do now but what i would say is that it was an opportunity to learn those basic research skills you know when i was up in yorkshire you know the um the msk radiologists were a very sort of successful body academically as well as clinically. And although I didn't particularly want to be a, an MSK radiologist, I, I really recognized what their strengths were. And so I, one of the first papers I, I wrote was actually on posterior medial ankle impingement, um, which, you know, it's got nothing to do with being an oncology radiologist. But what I learned was how to conduct research, how to write papers, how to present at meetings. And so I, I got some of those basic skills as a trainee. And the research that I've done subsequently has really come about from taking up opportunities. And I think that's really important that I think we all have to keep our minds open to new opportunities and to embrace those when they come along. I mean, when I took this consultant post, it comprised of leading on tumor types that the truth is nobody else wanted to do. You know, nobody wanted to do the myeloma MDT because it was skeletal surveys. Back then, nobody wanted to do the skin MDT because the treatment options for patients with melanoma were almost non-existent. You know, immunotherapy, you know, was really not on the horizon yet. And the other one that I do is soft tissue sarcoma, which is such a rare tumor type that people were sort of frightened of it. But actually, that myeloma MDT turned out to be just the most amazing opportunity because, you know, it's a no-brainer. Of course, we can do better than a skeletal survey for imaging patients with myeloma. You know, it was a gift in many regards. And that's where this journey of my whole body MRI research began. So it's almost like the gaunt was laying down in front of you and you picked it up and said, I'm going to sort this out. Yeah, I think it, honestly, I think it was a, a real gift because that's that's the part of the translational pipeline that I, I enjoy. I enjoy being a clinical radiologist, seeing a problem, designing the research, conducting the research and then changing the clinical practice. And, and that's just the, that's what I find rewarding. And so, you know, now, you know, many, so many of us are now using whole body MRI as part of routine care. It's actually in the nice guidance for patients with myeloma. And I think that's been a really rewarding journey for me to see patients directly benefit from the work that we do. It's a really interesting story that these were not necessarily popular things amongst your colleagues, or perhaps even also given the state at that time amongst radiologists in general. But, you know, how the world changes because of the research that's being done and perhaps being not putting words into your mouth but being in a position on the front line gives you that insight into the implementation and the impact that this could have i think that's absolutely right tom and i think although i, I may also i may be doing the research in a particular tumor type 
because I'm also the clinical radiologist, it's also my gift to shape the service. Um, and I think that's a, that's a really special situation to be in. One of the questions I'm intrigued to know the answer to is, were you ever tempted to be pursuing an academic position, a formalised university post? Yeah, I was actually. And actually, after I did my MD, I did spend about 18 months uh, in a senior lecturer post. And it may have been about the setup at the time, but it's also about my personality. You know, I wasn't doing MDTs in that post. I, um, I wasn't doing a lot of clinical work and I just wasn't feeling inspired. And I have to say that although I am very, very short on time at the moment, the inspiration to do research has never been greater. And actually, I think my research outputs have increased since I sort of increased my the clinical work that I do. I think, you know, as a radiologist, you do have to work quite closely with the clinicians. It's it's not always research that you can do in isolation within a radiology department. You do sometimes, for some sorts of research, need to work across the whole multidisciplinary team. And so in order to conduct the research studies and to have an effect on the clinical service, you need... For my sort of research, I needed to be more embedded in the clinical service. I think that's not true for everybody, but for the part of the translational pipeline where I wanted to sit, that's what, what I needed to do. Michelle, tell us a little bit more about your split between clinical and academic and could maybe touch on that point which Christina made so brilliantly about being so close to the service and being able to affect change within it. Yeah, I agree with Christina. It's so important in order to do research that's valuable or, or useful in, in any way, you really do need to understand what's going on in the, the clinical world and in the clinical pathway. And that interaction is really one of the great things that drives the, the research that I do. I speak to cardiologists, I speak to vascular surgeons, I speak to radiologists, and I really enjoy that part of my work. I'm lucky in that I get to do so much of my time research work and some clinical work but um, that interaction with the other team members means that the research that I do can be useful. There's no point in me coming up with something new and weird that is of no clinical use whatsoever or missing the big picture as to what actually might change things for patients. So I really enjoy that aspect of the research and um, I'm fortunate that I get to spend so much time doing both sides of the coin. I've got the perfect job, I think. Do you think there are some pressures on you in keeping your clinical skills up to scratch? Just the same as for everyone else. Um, I do a lot of clinical research. So most of my research is looking at clinical imaging. I'm not someone who does a lot of uh, animal work, although we do do some animal work. And I don't do a huge amount of histology work, although some of our research does have overlaps into those areas. So I'm lucky that a lot of my research is actually stuff that's clinical skills that I'm using every day. So our big research studies look at CT coronary angiography, looking at, uh, in the Scott Hart study, looking at symptomatic people, and now in the Scott Hart 2 study, looking at asymptomatic people. And CT coronary angiography is something that's exploded in, partly because of the research we've done. We now do it for all patients who come to the rapid access chest pain clinic, pretty much, with it being uh, changing the NICE guidelines to be part of that service. So. I'm lucky that my research is actually really useful and me having these skills that I've developed as part of the research means that in Edinburgh we have very short waiting lists for these things 
because of all the work that I do as part of the research and the clinical. So there's there's benefits both ways for both the clinical service and the research service. And for all of the general radiology, well, just like everyone else, I need to know all the things a general radiologist needs to know to be able to do uh, the inpatient and outpatient CT list. So reflecting back on the discussions that we've had through the podcast series so far, that seems to be yet another one of the options that you have is your research being close to your clinical practice, your research being quite diverse and away from it. And what in both ways feeding each other, one is an escape perhaps from the other and the other one is a natural marriage in which it just seems so logical. Christina, can I ask you, similarly, given your NHS service delivery being so active, perhaps the research can be viewed by others as a distraction? Or how do you keep your clinical skills so relevant and up to date? Well, I think I just agree with Michelle, you know, I mean, I'm still, you know, I do three MDTs a week, you know, I still have um, plenty of clinical lists. And, you know, actually, the research that we do is constantly feeding into our clinical practice and shaping the way that we work. It's actually very, very difficult now to draw a line between them. But what I would say, Tom, that I find particularly difficult is that the more engaged you get with research, one of the downsides is you get pulled into a lot of meetings. So whether that's representing the department internally at institutional meetings or externally, and so sometimes you sort of have to come off the rotor because you're at various meetings. And when with your clinical radiologist hat on at the end of the day, you can kind of sit back and say, gosh, yeah, I've done a hard day's work. And you can easily benchmark your achievements because you know, look at that, look how many CTs or MRIs I've reported. And so your contribution is much more transparent. But if you've spent a day in meetings, sometimes that doesn't feel so good. And sometimes I really worry about, you know, what was my contribution to the world today? Because it's not there in numbers. Now, I know, you know, if I look at the bigger picture, it is a contribution, but it's different, isn't it? And I think we have to start recognising that and, and thinking about how we how we measure that. And it's not easy. Yeah, I think a really weird analogy that just sprung to my mind is if you take a carrot, um, you're going to be chopping it up bit by bit by bit by bit. And you can see all that, but in the clinical environment, but maybe in the research world, you're you know, nurturing the carrot, you're growing it, you're preparing it, you're getting it ready, and then you're plopping it out the ground. Just so happens that when you have this combined career, you're then going to go on and cook it. So anyway, that's bizarre enough. Um, <laughs> Michelle, <laughs> let, let me come back to you and just touch on your situation and the opportunities there are for academic radiologists in Scotland. I think brain drain is so crude but i can see there are at least five academic centers in scotland that would be able to host a scred trainee do you think there are enough opportunities do you think that it is a very real problem that maybe they would be looking to move elsewhere bearing in mind that researchers could be looking anywhere in the world so scotland has a number of advantages um when it comes to attracting academic radiologists one really important one is the national tax so we have a Scotland-wide national PAC service, and that's all imaging that's been done, and that's all imaging technically since 2005, but really since 2009 when everything was up and running. That is an amazing amount of imaging that um, we're in the process of developing access to and uh, work with. And there's an amazing team at the Scottish Medical Imaging Group that are developing that. 
And so we're going to see over the next wee while a huge amount of data-driven imaging research coming out of that. Combine that with large investments by the Scottish government specifically into data-driven research, then you've got an amazing, really exciting setup unrivaled in the world for potential for doing radiology imaging. So that's one type of research. The other is a type of research where we take people in to have other scans and consent patients and get uh, a wide variety of different scans done for a wide variety of different conditions. Scotland has a heavy disease burden, so it's very good for a lot of interesting conditions to study and examine with a lot of lovely patients who give up their time, their effort, um, come in for scans or come in for extra tests as part of research studies. So on that clinical doing research point of view, there's a huge number of opportunities. Really, the only limitations are time. There's no limit to the number of ideas that people come up with. There are potentially limits to money. So it's get about finding time to do the research and finding money to do the research. When it comes to actually doing the research, the, the sky's the limit. Very good point about taking the opportunities that your region might offer for you. Again, we've been backwards and forwards on this about how you might choose what that research is that you might develop throughout your career, how you choose your PhD. And sometimes the place is set for you, therefore the project is set for you. I mean, in Norwich, for example, we have a really good rheumatoid arthritis uh, registry and Norfolk has similar kinds of benefits as a, as a population. So think of anyone thinking about at the outset of their research career, you know, those are subtle little things that maybe they may not have considered so go have a look go ask look around um see what kind of things are going on and the opportunities that brings to you yeah my top tip would be find a supervisor that you really get on with really like and are happy to spend a lot of time with over the next wee while because that's really the crux of whether you're going to enjoy the research or not Christina, can I come back to you and let's just think for a moment about some of the barriers you might face in getting your research work done and how having a relationship and a discussion with funders and employers, for example, as an NHS trust, um, can help facilitate that research time. Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, the barriers, I think, a shortage of time and bureaucracy. You know, the bureaucracy that is now involved in conducting research is, is overwhelming. It's very, very time consuming. And because of that, I think it is really important to have protected time to do research. Now, I think I'm very, very lucky that, you know, our director of research actually recognised the contribution I was making. To be honest, I was working for a number of years without any protected research time. I was fortunate that what I, the work that I was producing was valued. And so I, I do now have protected time in my job plan. I'm fortunate to work in an institution that's very research focused. So we have increasing support to help us with that bureaucracy. But what I also want to say, Tom, is that although I think it's inevitable that some of the earlier phase research is going to come out of the big academic institutions, if we really are going to deliver work that is for patient benefit, and sometimes we do have to stop and remind ourselves that that's why we're here, the research has to follow the patients, right? You know, that innovation has to be generalizable. It has to be translatable. And that often means testing that innovation in DGHs. So I have led multi-center imaging studies that has involved opening sites at DGHs. And I have to say, I am 
utterly humbled by those radiologists managing to engage in that research. So I think we need to start thinking increasingly about how we empower all radiologists to engage at some level, because it won't be until we achieve that that the full impact of radiology research will be felt. You know, I mean, as I was speaking to many of these radiologists that I have massive respect for, you know, the metrics that they're measured by are number of scans that they've reported. And nobody's really looking at their contribution to research and their contribution to the trials has been immense. You know, they don't have um, the big R&D teams that can help them fill out all the forms. They don't necessarily have research radiographers or research physicists that help them set up a new protocol on the scanner. So as a community, we need to start thinking really imaginatively about how we can support our colleagues, because I do know that the radiologists that have worked with us have found it rewarding. I know that it shaped their clinical practice. So, for example, we have helped them set up whole body MRI for a trial, but then they've now got that capability for their clinical service. So it sort of bleeds in and, and the patients benefit, they benefit. But I think that's what I very strongly believe is we all need to start thinking about how we can engage every radiologist at some level because the benefits are immense. So one of the responses that I have come across and I think is a common one is that academic radiology is not for me. I'm not sure what I could contribute. I'm not sure what experience I have. And I think that's, again, downplaying the essential skills. And maybe we need to be thinking of some kind of structure that reaches out and allows the non-academic centres, shall we say, to give their radiologists time to get involved with these trials. I, as the sort of imaging research lead in Norwich, would love to be able to argue for my consultant colleagues to have dedicated time. But out of our budget, that then becomes, when you add it all up, really difficult. And they are so generous with using their own personal time or SPA time to do that work, which is what I, I think you were hinting at. But what we have managed to do is have a conversation about how you might argue an SPA structure for someone delivering on that time. So maybe even calling them academic program activities in which you have a conversation with your lead about the kind of work you're going to be doing and what kind of progression you expect. And then the, the trust and your lead may be able to sort of then argue out exactly the kind of work that you're doing and say, okay, we'd see this as defined value. And you'll, you'll know, Christina, from discussions we've had outside of this podcast, that that's something we're trying to shape, but it does come with immense challenges. Yeah, I think that's right. But we should also remember, and actually as radiologists, we're not always very good at this, that some of these multi-center studies bring income in for trusts. And we're not always very savvy about pulling that apart and teasing that apart in trials. And, and that's because that money often doesn't come to radiology. But if we really think about it, we need to make that much more transparent so that radiologists can say, you know, we opened this site, we participated in this trial, this is the income it brought into the trust. So we need a proportion of that to keep coming into imaging to keep that support going. And I also think, you know, actually burnout is real. You know, sitting down all day reporting scans nonstop is really hard and it's draining. And actually, this this just adds a little bit of colour to the working day, doesn't it? It's something slightly different, engaging with slightly different people, thinking slightly differently, doing something that's shaping their service, being involved in something bigger. It's all something that contributes to having a more colourful career, I guess. Michelle, let me come back to you. I think we're dialing back a little bit here, actually. And I initially asked Christina about the barriers that she faced in her work. What about yourself? And do you see similar issues? What are the barriers that you face in getting the research to move on? 
Yes, I would echo many of the things that Christina has said from the point of view of barriers. Time is an important one. I wish I had uh, the ability to clone myself because there are lots of projects I want to do, but there's only one of me and I have to pick the ones that I want to do. Similarly, paperwork. I wish I had an R&D department that would help me fill in some of these forms. The other thing is money. A lot of things that I do doing imaging is expensive. Pet imaging, a thousand pounds a time. Um, so money is an important one. So I do spend a lot of time writing grant applications. I kind of treat all these barriers as just another hurdle along the road that somehow I'm going to get over. None of these are blockers. There's always a way either over them or around them. And particularly with the forms, they can be very daunting, but once you've done them once, it's the same every time. And similarly, grant applications. You write 10 grant applications, you might get one if you're lucky, but once you've written 10 grant applications, you've got quite good at writing grant applications. And it's an iterative process. The first time you do it, it's hard, but you just keep plodding at it. And that's one of the things that I think radiologists are really good at. We see something that we don't know on an imaging, we work out what it is, we work out what it means to the patient, and we try and make something better for the patient about it. And all of these hurdles along the way are all about us finding ways to make things better for the patients, ultimately. And as long as that's the ultimate goal we've got in our head, none of these are going to be blockers. They're just things we need to work around. Given that um, you, you have both had very different, but I think very resonating experiences, can I ask both of you if you would go through the same thing again, uh, Christina, would you do it the same way if you were given a second chance? I have to say yes. I mean, you know, you couldn't have designed my career path if you tried. It was a series of, of chance opportunities. But I have to say yes, I, I would do it the same way. Yeah, I, I don't have any regrets. And yourself, Michelle? Yes, yeah, same here. I absolutely love my job. I have the best job in the world. And it was a, like Christine, a funny way that I got here. Couldn't have predicted this. I was going to be an interventional cardiologist, but hey, it's worked all right in the end. Good. It definitely sounds so for both of you. Right. We've come to the end of the time that we have for this part one of episode four, but I do like to get the crystal ball out and ask where you think you're going to be in 10 years time, Michelle. I will still be in Edinburgh. I will still be researching the heart, the lungs and the blood vessels. 17 million people will die of cardiovascular disease this year, even in the year of COVID. I thoroughly believe in the 80-20 rule, head for the things that are the big wins and hopefully in the future, that number will come down. And Christina, what about yourself? Where do you see yourself in 10 years time? I think if I'm still where I am with the opportunities that I have today, I will consider myself to be very lucky. But I do hope that we will all be uh, bearing the fruits of our labours and that we will have uh, a much larger community of academic radiologists um, working together and really showing what good imaging can do for patients. And, and I have to say one, one of the greatest pleasures actually of academic radiology is seeing the trainees come through and, and learning and seeing that trainee get their first publication is um, it's often a, a long journey and a hard journey but when they get that first publication to have been a part of that is a real joy so I look forward to some of those moving up the academic ladder. I think these are both um, absolutely reasonable and really fair um, aspirations for the future <laughs> and it's sad that you know that really is all the time that we have for in this first part of episode four. 
Join us in part two when we'll be talking to Mark Little from Reading and Kieran Foley from South Wales about their academic career experiences and, of course, their answers to the crash test. It's been a huge pleasure to talk with our guests for this first part, who I'd like to thank once more, Christina Messieu and Michelle Williams. And thanks also to Charlotte McKeown and the Royal College of Radiologists events team and the college itself for supporting this podcast. And of course, to Sue Mercer for her invaluable sound editing. As usual, you can find show notes at the RCR website. And if you have any questions about what we have discussed today or any other matters related to academic radiology, then you can email them to conf at rcr.ac.uk. That's conf at rcr.ac.uk. Remember that the RCR Research Day is next week on Wednesday, the 18th of November, when as many of our crash guests as possible will come together for a live roundtable discussion and answer those questions that you have sent in. So don't be shy and take this opportunity to ask away. We bring you exciting news that we have not one, but two more crash podcast releases for 2020. In episode five, which will be released on Wednesday, December the 2nd, we will be talking with three professors about their experiences, including what they see in successful academic radiologists of the future, what still makes research so exciting for them. And do not miss the crash test for that episode as I post some thinkers not only to my ex-boss, but also my current boss, oh dear. Then we will be releasing a final Christmas special towards the end of the year. Each episode in which we have spoken with women, we have been asking what they think could be done to support and increase opportunities for women in academic radiology. Their collated thoughts on this make for essential listening. So be sure to pick up this final episode of the year released on Wednesday, the 16th of December. Don't forget about Radiant, the Radiology Academic Network for Trainees, about which you can find more at www.radiantuk.com. If you've enjoyed your crash experience, tell your friends and colleagues, give us a thumbs up and subscribe. And no, we don't call our guests crash test dummies as soon as they leave the recording. I've been your host, Tom Termazai. Until next time, stay safe.